Right, you can turn to Genesis chapter 27. We'll actually start in 27, spend most of our time in 28 today. If you don't happen to know me, I want to let you know I am always a man with a plan. I've, I've always been a man with a plan. I don't take things by chance in life. It's not really my style. I don't take a lot of risks. I like to plan things very very carefully plan for all contingency, plan out my future really carefully. So when I was a student here at A&M, I had a plan for how I would get the job I wanted at the company I wanted so I could become a manager by 30 and a millionaire by 35. I kid you not. I had it all planned out. I, I knew what GPA I needed. I knew what references I needed. I knew what accomplishments I needed. I knew what contacts I needed. And, and I figured that if I could do all of these things, if I could get all of this stuff taken care of, then I could get all that I wanted in life. So, yeah, I'm not a real humble person. <laughs> not by nature. Uh, a lot of people think that I'm humble, and that's because I pretend to be humble really well. Um, but I know what's going on in my mind. And, and by nature, a lot of my thoughts, especially when I was a college student, were not humble. I was prideful. I thought that I controlled my future, that I controlled my fate. So I made this plan... And I worked really hard and I accomplished everything on it, every checkbox I, I took care of. Everything was going according to my plan until a recession hit. 1998 started in Asia, worked its way around the world, and this recession particularly impacted the industry that I had planned to go in. And so I graduated and none of the jobs that I expected to get were available. They'd all dried up. So I took a job at a little company in Virginia that I did not like. And, and that, that disappointment that I felt when I moved up to Virginia crushed me. It crushed me because I had worked seven days a week for four and a half years here at A&M to get everything that I wanted in life, and then I had failed. I was broken when I headed up to Virginia. It really humbled me, but, but here's the funny thing. I found that, that once God had humbled me, once he had broken me of my false belief that I somehow controlled my future, once I was broken, then I began to grow. And that was actually the really great thing about my time in Virginia. It was humbling, it was painful, it was hard, it was disillusioning, and yet it was the most productive time of spiritual growth I had ever had in that point, up to that point in my life. I, I grew dramatically during that time. God broke me and then he grew me. And in that process, I learned a lesson in life. I've seen it in my life, I've seen it in other people's lives, and I see it throughout scripture. A lesson that is always true. God must break us of pride before he can grow us in grace. God must break you before he can grow you. All the things that you want to grow in life, joy, peace, love, hope, faith, all of those good things, they cannot grow in a heart that is prideful. Pride is poison to spiritual growth. And so God must break us of our pride before he can grow us in grace. So God is going to take all of those things that you cling to in life other than him, all of those things about you that make you feel prideful about yourself, your intelligence, your relationships, your good looks, your talent, your skills, your experiences, your business, whatever it is, all the things you cling to that make you feel good about yourself, God will take those things and he will strip them away until you have nothing left to cling to but him. He will make those things disappoint you. He will make those things fail you. He will make those things fade away until you have nothing to cling to but him because that's when growth can begin. That's how God works. He must break us of pride before he can grow us in grace. We'll see that in the life of Jacob over the next two weeks. 
Over the next two weeks, we're going to see God break Jacob, that's this week, and then restore and grow Jacob, that's next week. Now, let's be honest, really rather hear next week's sermon. Way more fun, way more enjoyable story in Jacob's life when God restores him and grows him, but God can't grow you until he breaks you. So this morning, we're going to see God break Jacob over a span of about 14 years of his life. God is going to humble this prideful man by showing him three things. There's three things that Jacob will see in the passages we're looking at today. Three things that will break him, that will humble him. He will see the terrifying glory of his God. And then he will see the surprising grace of his God. And then he will see the terrible cost of his sin. Those three things will will break Jacob. They will humble this prideful man. So let's jump in. The first thing that God shows Jacob in order to humble him, God reveals his terrifying glory to Jacob. Now let's review for a moment. What do we know about Jacob? We met him last week. Jacob is a man with a plan. Man with a plan. He was the second born twin son. Esau, his older brother, was older by only about a minute, but that minute was everything in the ancient world. That meant that Esau, as the older, had the birthright. meant that Esau would inherit the family fortune and inherit control over the family. So Esau possessed that legal right that Jacob wanted. Jacob did not want to play second fiddle to anyone. So Jacob spent his early life planning and scheming how he could steal away the birthright from Esau. And we saw that plan unfold last week. Jacob totally succeeded total success. He, he steals the birthright and the blessing from Esau. He gets everything he wanted in life, but it doesn't work out so well because there's one thing Jacob did not plan for. <laughs> he did not take into account how angry Esau would be when he had the birthright stolen. So look with me in chapter 27. Chapter 27, verse 41. This is right after Jacob has stolen the blessing. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau is the stronger one. It is well within his power to kill Jacob. So Rebekah, Jacob's mom, makes a plan. Look at verse 43. Now therefore, my son, Jacob, obey my voice and arise. Flee to Haran to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides. So Jacob had crafted a plan that would put him in control of the family. Well, plan succeeded, but instead of putting him in control of the family, he has to run from the family. He has to run for his life because Esau is going to kill him. So his mom sends him from Beersheba, their home, about 500 miles north to Haran. So Jacob heads out on this journey to escape Esau and find a wife. He heads off, 500-mile journey, but something happens along the way. About 50 miles from home, something happens that Jacob did not expect. It begins with Jacob alone in the wilderness. Look with me, verse 10 of chapter 28. Chapter 28, verse 10. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. So Jacob is is journeying. He gets 50 miles into his journey and he stops for the night. And there's a few things I want you to notice about, about this account, about where Jacob is. This is not a good day for Jacob. Life's not going well. At this moment. How do we know that? Well, because first of all, Jacob is alone. He, he has no one with him in this account, just Jacob. He has no servants. He has no friends. He has no family. What's really tragic, actually, is there's only one person in the world who loved Jacob, 
only one, his mom, Rebecca, only person who loved him. Jacob has left his mom for the last time. Never will see his mom again. He'll be gone for 20 years. She'll die while he's gone. So he's utterly alone and he's nowhere. He's in the middle of the wilderness. There's there's no name for this place. It says a certain place. In the ancient world, everywhere you wanted to be had a name. You always had a name, either the town or the house or the field or the stream or the tree. But there's no name here because there's nowhere you want to be where where Jacob is. This is not a nice place. It, It looked like this. It will be called Bethel later. It is a wilderness. There's nothing friendly about this place. It's in the middle of nowhere. So Jacob has no one, and he's in the middle of nowhere. And finally, notice, he has nothing. How do you know he has nothing? Because what does he use for a pillow? A rock. Your your, your life is really going poorly when you are sleeping on a rock. He, He has nothing. No tent, no bedding, no comforts of home. He has lost everything. His plan, where he, where he was crafting this, this way in which he would get everything he wanted from life, it has completely backfired. Now he has nothing. He has no one. He's in the middle of the wilderness with nothing to his name. He was an incredibly poor man at this point in his life. So things aren't working out well for Jacob. This is a bad night for him. It gets worse because then God shows up. God shows up in his glory. Verse 12, he, Jacob, had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God shows up and he speaks to Jacob. Now, it's easy to miss what's going on here because of some translation issues. This isn't a ladder that he sees. It's not, not a little ladder. It's actually, literally, it's, it's a huge stairway. So a really wide stairway that ascends from the earth all the way into the heavens. It goes further up than, than you can possibly see. So it's this massive stairway that Jacob sees in the middle of the wilderness. And going up and down are all these angelic beings. Now, when we hear about angels in the Bible, we have to pause. Because for a lot of us, when we hear the word angel, we, we tend to think this little guy. Precious moments, really cute little figurine. That's what angels are. Um, well, I don't know what angels look like. Bible doesn't tell us clearly. I just know they are not cute. They, they don't look like that. Because when angels show up in the Bible looking like angels, no one says, oh, hey, look, an angel, how precious. No one says that. Everyone who sees an angel in the Bible falls on their knees in terror. To see an angel is a terrifying thing. They are incredibly powerful, stunning beings. And so just seeing this stairway and these angels going up and down, that alone would be enough to terrify Jacob. But then someone else shows up. Someone comes down the stairway, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And and the Hebrew here, or the the English can be a little misleading. In, In the Hebrew, God is not at the top of the stairway. God comes down the stairway. He walks all the way down the stairs from heaven down to earth such that he is standing literally right over Jacob. So he's come all the way down and now God, almighty God, creator Yahweh is standing right over Jacob speaking to him. Okay, so how does Jacob respond to this vision of this massive stairway, lots of angels, and the creator God coming down and standing over him? Well, it terrifies Jacob. Terrifies him. Look at verse 16. 
Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. He was afraid, and he says, How awesome is this place! Now, unfortunately, in English, that word awesome has lost all its original meaning. Anything you like is awesome these days. So the Aggies, they're awesome. The Olympics are awesome. Your new phone is awesome, and fries covered in cheese are awesome. Everything is awesome, but that's not what the word means. In Hebrew, literally awesome, it means terrifying. It means intimidating. When you saw something awesome in Hebrew, you fell on your face shaking. That's what Jacob is saying. Jacob is utterly terrified by this vision. There's nothing comfortable about it. He's really afraid. Now, why exactly is his, he so afraid? Well, we get a couple clues here. The first is he's, he's really afraid because he suddenly realizes that this God that he worships is way bigger than he ever realized, ever could have imagined. You, you see that because Jacob said, I, I did not know that the Lord is in this place. Why didn't Jacob know that? Because Jacob assumed that his God was like all the other gods of the ancient world. They were localized deities, little deities, small gods that lived in a temple or maybe a tree or a stone, a God that if you wanted to pray to him, you had to go to his house because he's small. That, that's what they believed in in the ancient world. So Jacob assumed his God was really small, but all of a sudden here in the middle of the wilderness, no house, no tree, nothing to worship, here is his God in the most unexpected place, spanning the distance from earth to heaven. Jacob is overwhelmed by the bigness of his God. So he's afraid because God is big, but he's also afraid because this really big God is his dad's God. Did you catch that? God shows up and says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. What did Jacob just done to his dad? He just deceived him, manipulated him, and humiliated him. Jacob had just totally taken advantage of his dad. And here the creator of the universe shows up in all his glory standing over Jacob and says, yeah, you know your dad, I'm his God. So it's right for Jacob to be terrified. It's smart for him to shake when he sees almighty God show up and say, I'm your dad's God, guy you just took advantage of. God shows up and he terrifies Jacob. God shows up in all his glory to absolutely scare the socks off Jacob. Now, why does God do that? Why does God want to terrify Jacob? Because the first step in humbling a prideful person is to show them the glory of God. When a person sees the unveiled glory of God, there's no room for pride. You see the unveiled glory of God and all of a sudden, all of your strength, all of your accomplishments, all the great things in your life seem tiny and ridiculous in comparison to his glory. God humbles us by showing up and showing us this is who I am. This is how big I am. This is how glorious I am. You see that over and over in scripture. God humbles people. He prepares people to do great things by showing up in his glory to show them how awesome, how glorious, how holy he is. God does it over and over. You see it in the book of Isaiah. How did God prepare Isaiah to become the greatest writing prophet anywhere in the Old Testament? By showing up. God showed him his glory, Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord, Isaiah says, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. 
Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds of the temple, they trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then he, that is Isaiah, then Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees God in all of God's glory, and all he can do is fall on his face in fear. It terrifies Isaiah. There was no room left in Isaiah's life for pride because he has seen the greatness of God, and everything about him seems small and sinful and ridiculous compared to the absolute glory and holiness of God. God humbles us by revealing to us his glory, his terrifying majesty. And so that leads us to the first application I have for you this morning. First thing I think we need to do with what we're learning from Jacob's life is that if we want to grow as followers of Jesus Christ, we must come to grips with the terrifying glory of God. You have to have that moment in your life where you come to understand that your God, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, that there is nothing safe about him. There's nothing comfortable about your God. Christianity leaves no room for a safe, comfortable, or small God. Your God is not safe. He's not comfortable. Your God is terrifyingly glorious. If God showed up right here in the middle of the room, right now, not a single one of us would feel safe or comfortable in his presence. Because he is terrifyingly glorious. And he needs us to know that. He needs us to realize that because your spiritual growth will never grow, will never enlarge beyond your view of the greatness of God. That's just a principle in life. You will never grow beyond the size of your view of God. If God is small in your eyes, your spiritual growth will always be small. It will be stunted by your small understanding of God. But if God is great in your eyes, if he is big and high and majestic, then there is no limit to the spiritual growth God can accomplish in your life. There's no limit to what he can do in you. Your spiritual growth will always be proportional to the size of God in your eyes. And so God breaks us by showing us his glory to give us a bigger view of him so that we can grow, so that we can become more like Christ. And so let me challenge you this week to enlarge your view of your God by spending some time in this passage in Isaiah 6 that we just read. I'd encourage you this week to sit down with the Lord and read Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 7 and and read it and then reread it and imagine you are in Isaiah's shoes. Imagine it's you there. And then remind yourself this really happened. This isn't a movie. It's not a fairy tale. This is real. So put yourself in Isaiah's shoes and imagine what it would feel like to be in the presence of your God. When you finish with Isaiah 6, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 1. Just the first chapter of the book of Revelation. I want you to read it and discover how John describes Jesus. John, who was friends with Jesus on earth, they're really close. Um, John sees Jesus after the resurrection, Jesus in glory. And I'll give you a hint. The Jesus of the book of Revelation, he's not a friendly dude with a beard. Doesn't look like that at all. John sees Jesus in his glory and it terrifies him. Jesus is so overwhelming that it says literally in the Greek, the apostle John, he fell to his knees so in fear that he almost died. It scared him to death literally. 
to see Jesus. He fell down as a dead man before Jesus Christ. That's the God you have. So spend time worshiping God and meditating on Isaiah 6 and Revelation 1, reading them, thinking about them, letting them sink into your heart and humble you. As you spend time meditating on the glory and greatness of God, let it make everything else in your life feel small. Let the greatness of God make all the things you cling to seem ridiculous compared to him. Pray that God would use these uncomfortable passages, these fearful passages to break you of pride and grow you in humility. So spend time meditating on the terrifying glory of your God. That's the first thing that God uses to begin to break this prideful man, to begin to humble him. God shows Jacob his unfiltered, terrifying glory. That's the first thing that begins to to humble Jacob. But there's a second thing here in this account. In this encounter between God and Jacob, Jacob doesn't only see the terrifying glory of God. There's something else that God reveals here. The second thing that God uses to humble Jacob, to break him, God shows Jacob his surprising grace. His surprising grace. Uh, Let's think for a moment, what is God doing when Jacob first sees him? Where's God? What's God doing? He's coming down. He's coming down the stairway. So Jacob's God, he doesn't say, hey, come up to me. No, Jacob's God comes down to him. He descends. He comes to Jacob. And then when he comes down and he's standing over Jacob, what does he say to Jacob? Well, you would expect God, the God of his father Isaac, to say, hey, it is judgment day, you little lying punk. That's what we would expect because Jacob had been a really deceitful, sinful man. But that's not what God says. Now, God shows up and he says, hey, Jacob, I I have promises to give you. I have promises to give you. Land, seed, and blessing that I promised to Abraham and I promised to Isaac. Now it's yours. And that's ironic because Jacob had spent his whole life up to this point trying to get that promise. Trying to earn it through deception, through trickery, through manipulation. Then God shows up and just says, hey, it's yours for free. No strings attached. No conditions. God descends from heaven to give Jacob promises instead of punishment. And that is the surprise of grace. That's the shocking thing about the grace of God. God climbs down. He doesn't make us climb up to him. He climbs down and then he comes down to give us promises instead of the punishment that we deserve. Think about that. Compare Christianity to every other religion. This is the thing that makes Christianity so unique. Lots of religions have a a big view of God. This is what makes Christianity unique. Every other religion out there aims to tell you what you must do to climb to God. All the good things you got to do to earn eternal life, earn the promises of God. You got to go to church, you got to go to mosque, you got to go to synagogue, you got to do good works, you got to give to the poor, you got to avoid bad sins. All the things you have to do to climb. That's what religion is designed to do, tell you what you must do to climb to God. But Christianity tells you exactly the opposite. Christianity tells you that God climbed down to you. He didn't make you go up. He came down. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God took on human flesh and walked down the stairway for you. He came and lived on earth among human beings, living our lives with us. And then he, he came to the cross, not to punish us, but to take our punishment for us. The Son of God came down from heaven to take our punishment for us so that he could give us the promises of God, forgiveness and eternal life, as an absolutely free gift. That is what is so stunningly unique about the God of the Bible. He doesn't make you climb. He doesn't make you work for it. He gives it to you for free. He came down to die for you so that you could have eternal life as a free gift. 
All you have to do is just come with empty hands and say, yes, please, I want that. But to do that, to come to God and receive the gift of eternal life for free, that takes humility. It's actually the ultimate step of humility, to receive eternal life, to be saved. That takes humility because you have to say, God, I've got nothing to give you. I have nothing to impress you with. None of my good works, none of my church attendance, none of my giving to the poor. None of it impresses you. I set it all aside. And instead, I come with empty hands to humbly say, please save me. Please, I I accept the gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ purchased with his blood. And so I encourage you, if you've not at some point in your life had that moment when you've come to God with empty hands and said yes to his offer of eternal life, that's what you need to do today. The most important thing you could possibly do, you need to come to God and say yes. Say, God, I'm done trying to earn your love. I'm not going to try to impress you anymore. I'm not going to try to work my way up to you. God, I come with empty hands and say yes to the offer of eternal life, the free gift of forgiveness that your son Jesus earned for me by coming down, dying for me, and rising from the dead. It's a beautiful thing about the God of the Bible. It doesn't make you climb. It doesn't make you work for it. He came down and gives it to you as a free gift. All you have to do is humble yourself enough to say yes. So God has begun to break this prideful man, to humble him. God has shown Jacob the terrifying glory of God and the surprising grace of God, but we're not quite there yet. Jacob is still holding on to a lot of pride, a lot of self-reliance. How do we know? Because look at what Jacob says next, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I've set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you have given me, I will surely give a tenth to you. What does Jacob say? God, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal here. I I like what you're saying. I, I like what I'm seeing. So I'll tell you what, you do everything you just promised. You take care of everything in my life that I want, and then I'll make you my God, and I'll give you a tenth of all I have. Jacob still wants control of his life, still wants to call the shots. He makes the conditions. He sets the bargaining arrangements. He's trying to make a deal with God. That proves that he's still holding on to a lot of pride. He's not willing to let go and trust God. He's not willing to humble himself before God. So God's got to go further. God's got to break him with with a third vision. And this one is really painful. Really wish Jacob would have wised up at this point, but he didn't. And so God breaks Jacob with a third thing that he shows to Jacob through a lot of pain. Third thing God is going to show Jacob to humble him is he's going to reveal to Jacob the terrible cost of his sin. Terrible cost of his sin. It begins when Jacob arrives in Haran. So look with me. Jacob arrives in Haran, chapter 29, verse 10. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Jump to verse 14. Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. 
So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Jacob arrives in Haran and immediately meets the girl of his dreams. He sees Rachel coming out, and he is absolutely taken with her. Now, Rachel is his cousin. Just set that aside for a moment. It wasn't weird back then. Um, weird today, but not weird back then. Jacob sees Rachel, and, and he immediately tries to impress her. You notice he tries to roll the stone away. He's trying to show how strong he is. He was apparently a really strong guy. So he tries to impress her, and then he grabs his hand, her hand and weeps over her, which is like the weirdest first date that I know of anywhere in the Bible. Really weird first date. He weeps over her because he is just completely in love with her. It is totally love at first sight between Jacob and Rachel. Now, actually, let's be honest. It's not love, is it? Because Rachel hasn't said anything at this point. He knows nothing about her when he weeps over her. Actually, he only knows one thing. He knows she's pretty. Beautiful of form and face. That's the Hebrew saying, basically, she is sexually attractive like remarkably attractive in face, in body, beautiful figure. Everything about her is incredibly attractive. And so Jacob is instantly infatuated with her. He's not in love, he's in lust. He just desperately wants this woman before he even knows her. He wants her so bad that the next thing he does is makes a deal. Because that's what Jacob does. He makes deals. So he makes a deal with her dad, Laban. I'll work for you for seven years for the hand of Rachel. Now, that's actually a really extravagant price, way above the going rate for a bride back then. Basically, Jacob, he's just willing to give anything. He just so desperately wants to be with this woman. He wants her so bad that those seven years go by really fast, and now it's time for Jacob to get what Jacob wants, because that's always how it's worked. Jacob gets what Jacob wants, but then the wheels come off. God turns the tables on Jacob. Because he makes Jacob pray of a man who's just like him. Laban is just like Jacob. Exactly like Jacob. Jacob wanted something, and so he deceived his father to get it. Laban wants something, and so he'll deceive Jacob to get it. Look what happens next in the account, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went in to her. It's one of the most ironic plot twists in the Bible. Jacob dressed up like another man, got his dad drunk, and stole the birthright. So God turns the tables, brings his own sins right back on to his own head. Leah dresses up like another person, like Rachel. They get Jacob drunk, and then she comes in and steals his wedding night. The exact same sin right back on Jacob so that he will now know how bad it hurts to be deceived, how bad it hurts to be manipulated and taken advantage of. Jacob wakes up the next morning, and he is absolutely furious. Look at verse 25. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? Jacob is furious because Leah is not the one he wanted. Remember, Rachel, she is beautiful of form and face. Leah is the opposite. She is weak of eyes. It's a Hebrew euphemism for she's not at all attractive. They are completely polar opposites. And all Jacob cares about at this point in his life is physical beauty. That's all he wants, physical attraction. And so he didn't want Leah. And so he goes to Laban and confronts Laban about this deception. And look at what Laban says, how he responds. Verse 26. But Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. 
So Laban gets a pretty sweet deal here. He deceived and manipulated Jacob, and the result is he gets 14 years of free labor. Pretty sweet for Laban. Jacob gets totally taken advantage of. Now, that forces us to ask, why doesn't Jacob say something? Why doesn't Jacob fight back? Why doesn't he go to the authorities? Why does Jacob remain silent and accept this? Because, look carefully at the words in verse 26. Literally, in Hebrew, Laban says to Jacob, Jacob, it is not our custom around here to give the younger the place of the firstborn. Laban knows those words will cut Jacob deep because that's what Jacob did. That's exactly what he did to his brother and to his dad. And so Jacob, he is silenced by the guilt that is on his own head. He is silenced when he sees, I am just as guilty. He's silenced because he sees, this is the pain I caused my dad. This is the pain I caused Esau. Jacob is broken when God allows him to experience the painful cost of his own sin. God just turns the table to humble this man, to break him. Here is what your sin cost the people you love. Now you see. God humbles Jacob by showing him the painful consequences of sin. But God's not done yet. God's not done yet. So now Jacob has two wives. He's got Rachel and Leah. And whenever you have more than one wife, things don't go well for you. Never does. The Bible's really clear about that. Polygamy never works. Things don't go well in Jacob's household. Every member of the household from this moment on, because of sin, because of deception and manipulation and all the sins they've committed, every member in this household lives the rest of their life in their own personal hell. That's the rest of the story. It's not real happy. Leah. She lives in the hell of being unloved. She's the unloved one, and Jacob doesn't try to hide that. Jacob prefers Rachel, doesn't try to hide it. Leah knows she's unloved. Here's the irony, though. Jacob had spent his entire life up to this point the victim of favoritism, right? By who? By his dad. Isaac loved his brother more and didn't try to hide it. And so Jacob had spent his life trying to earn his dad's affection without any success. He knew better than anyone the pain of favoritism. He, above anyone else, should have had compassion on Leah, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He inflicts his pain on her. He doesn't try to hide his dislike of Leah. And that crushes her for the rest of her life. It just completely crushes her. And so Leah, just like Jacob, begins to do anything she can to try to earn his affection. Look with me at verse 31. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Leah uses her children as pawns to try to, to try to earn Jacob's love. It's really sad. She names her children about her desire to earn Jacob's love, but it doesn't work. Jacob never loves her. Leah goes to her grave an unloved woman. Absolute tragedy to look at that woman's life. Just weep over her. She's in her own personal hell because she's the unloved wife. But what about Rachel? Rachel is the preferred wife, the loved wife, but she's in her own hell because she's in the hell of infertility. She's barren. She can't have children. And as we said earlier, infertility is painful in our day and age. In the ancient world, it was an absolute curse. They actually believed you were cursed by God if you were a wife who could not bear children. For a woman, the worst thing you could say about her was she was barren. And so Rachel is cursed with infertility, and she doesn't respond well. What you actually see when you study Rachel and how she's portrayed in the Bible, she was beautiful on the outside and really ugly on the inside. 
Really ugly. She's a very manipulative woman. She wants to compete with her sister, and so she actually takes her maid and gives her maid to Jacob as a surrogate wife. And then when that maid gets pregnant, Rachel takes the children and claims them as her own. Try to keep up with Leah. It's ugly. Rachel proves to be a really bitter, manipulative woman. She actually will introduce idolatry into her family later on. So let's just pause for a moment, you young men who are not married. I just want you to see really clearly what happens when you choose physical beauty over godliness. You pay for it for the rest of your life. That's what Jacob did. Paid for it for the rest of his life because he chose Rachel over Leah. Okay, so Rachel's in her own hell, just like Leah, and so is Jacob. Jacob is in the hell of polygamy. He has two wives, Rachel and Leah. They both give him their maids to try to get them pregnant so they can claim the baby so they can win this baby battle with their sister. Really crazy. So Jacob now is a pawn in his own household getting played by four different wives who all hate each other and are competing with each other for the affection of their husbands. If there was ever an argument against polygamy, it is Jacob's family. And it is an absolute tragedy. If they were alive today, they would for sure have a reality TV show. They're a a complete mess. Complete mess. For the rest of their lives, all three of these people will be living in their own personal hell as a consequence of the sinful choices they have made. God allows the pain and suffering of sin to come upon Jacob, to overwhelm Jacob so that he could finally be broken and humbled. And it does work. From this point on in the story, you will never see a prideful Jacob again. He's a broken man. He's humble before God. You will see a man who is dependent upon God because he has been broken finally by seeing the cost of his sin. And that prepares us and leads us to the third and final application I have for you this morning. If you want to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ you must accept responsibility for the pain that your sins have caused. You've got to own up to the pain you have caused in your life and the lives of others through your sin. Now, Jacob wasn't willing to do that. He closed his eyes to his sin. He didn't confess his sin. He didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't take responsibility. He was not willing to take responsibility for the bad things he had done. And so God just let the sin and consequences build up and build up and build up until they just overwhelmed and crushed Jacob. That is what will happen if you don't take responsibility for your sin. It will eventually build up to the point in your life where it crushes you. I don't want you to be crushed by the weight of unconfessed sin. It's a horrible place to be. I don't want you to be crushed by that. And so I encourage you this morning to look at your life, to look at where you have sinned, where you have hurt people, with your choices, with your actions, and I want you to take responsibility for it. I want you to be willing to say to God, I was wrong. I want you to be willing to go to other people and say, I was wrong. That is the only way that you can avoid the suffering and destruction that will come upon you and your family from unconfessed sin. You must be willing to take responsibility. That's a hard thing. That's hard because it requires humility. We don't want to admit we were wrong. We don't want to take responsibility for where we failed. We want to look like we have our lives together. But as long as you close your eyes to the sins you've committed, you unleash destruction into your life. So I encourage you, take responsibility for your sin. You can begin this week, four things. First, spend time reflecting. Go before the Lord and pray, God, open my eyes to see the sin that I have committed. 
Let me see the pain I've caused other people. Because sometimes we're oblivious. We, we don't see the pain we've caused. We're so busy. We're so caught up in ourselves. So pray, God, show me. Show me my sin. Show me the pain I have caused other people. And then as God begins to reveal sin to you, turn to him and ask for forgiveness. That's what confession means. You go to God and you acknowledge, you agree with God. Yes, God, this was sin. I was wrong. I'm so sorry. Please cleanse me of that sin. Go to the Lord and confess your sins to him. And then third, go to other people and ask for forgiveness from anyone you've hurt. Anybody you've hurt in a significant way, you gotta go to them and you gotta say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Now, often in life, they will have also hurt you. That's usually how it works. We hurt each other. And then we, we don't want to ask forgiveness because we're waiting for the other person. What if they don't ask for forgiveness? What well, doesn't matter? It doesn't matter what they do about their sins. What matters is that you go. You go first and ask forgiveness from that person. And then once you've asked forgiveness, to the best of your ability, you make restitution. You can't fix necessarily what you've broken, but to the best of your ability, you make it right. You do what you can to restore what you have broken and fix the suffering that you have caused. God doesn't want you to be crushed by the consequences of unconfessed sin. So go before him in humility and confess your sins. Go humbly before other people. Ask for forgiveness. Make restitution. This week, I I encourage you to spend time with the Lord thinking about the things you've learned in this sermon. God wants you to enjoy a life that is full of love and peace and joy and significance and hope. But you can't have that life if you're walking in pride. You cannot have those things, love, joy, peace, hope. You you can't have those things unless you're a broken person, a humble person. So go before the Lord this week and spend time meditating on and contemplating, thinking about his terrifying glory, how great and holy and righteous and awesome he is, thinking about his surprising grace, how stunning it is that God would come down to you to give you promises instead of punishment. And reflecting on the terrible cost and pain your sin has caused. Reflect on those things. And finally, I would encourage you to pray a prayer that I pray for myself as well. Kind of sounds like a funny prayer. Go before the Lord and as you think about those things, ask God, God, please make me break quickly. Please make me break quickly. Because God is going to break you. That's the only way to grow you. He will allow you to be broken. And so pray, God, make me soft before you. Make me humble before you so I can break quickly so you can begin to grow all the things you want in my life. Parents, that's what we should be praying for our children when they're rebellious. God, break them quickly, please. He must break them. He must break us. Let it not be like Jacob who went for 14 years living in his own personal hell before he was finally willing to humble himself before God. God, let it be quickly in our lives. Break us quickly. Let us see your greatness, your glory, your grace. Let us see the pain and the suffering our own sins have caused so that we can come before you with open hands so that you can begin to transform us and grow us. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the God that you are. Lord, we acknowledge that you are so absolutely glorious, you are so terrifyingly holy, that if you were in this place, if you were here right now, none of us would feel safe or comfortable or warm or happy. We would all be on our face in terror before you. You are so great, God. Please forgive us of our small pictures of you. Forgive us that we tend to think of you in really small and familiar ways. I pray that you would open our eyes to see how great and glorious and splendid you are. 
But Father, how we thank you that you are a terrifyingly glorious God who has chosen to come down to us. That doesn't make any sense to us. That's so crazy. You don't make us climb to you. You don't make us work for your love. You came down to die for us so that we could have your love as a free gift. Thank you for your stunning grace. Thank you that we come before you to receive promises instead of punishment. And finally, God, we come before you and we confess we have sinned. Every one of us in this room, we have done foolish things, sinful things, evil things that have brought pain and destruction in our lives and in the lives of those who we care about. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see our sin so that we can confess it to you. We pray that you would humble us and make us willing to ask for forgiveness from one another and to do what we can to make restitution for the pain that we have caused. Father, help us to own up and take responsibility for our sins. Father, we come before you and we we worship you and we praise you, but we get on our knees and we ask you, Father, do whatever it takes in our lives to make us humble. We cannot grow until you break us, so please, God, let us break quickly. Let us be soft before you so that you can humble us, break us, till the soil, so that growth can begin. We praise you and thank you that you are a loving Father who wants us to grow. We entrust our lives to you. We thank you for your Son who came down for us. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.